call for all of us to recognise and acknowledge the fact of occupation, to rethink the received colonial settler narrative. You're listening to Deadly Justice with Sarush and Tallulah. Welcome to Deadly Justice. You are listening to Tallulah and Sarush. And this week we will be talking about um, a quite a sad topic and we should put a warning out to people that this um, topic involves um, people that have passed away. Um, so this week we'll be talking about the inquest to the 13 suicides in the Kimberley. Um, yeah, Sarush, do you want to just give us uh, a little bit of an intro? Oh, we'd like to acknowledge all of the families that participated in the inquest um, and, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, like Tulu said, it's it's quite a heavy topic. So, um, you know, feel free to, to tune out if, if it's um, going to be too heavy for you or um, it's going to be hurtful. We're not going to mention any names, um, but we are talking about matters that affect everyone up here in the Kimberley. Mm. So, um, yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, the coroner announced that she wanted to do an inquest looking at 13 young people who passed away in the Kimberley. And they had the deaths had taken place over the preceding couple of years. It was sparked by a, um, a very um, tragic uh, death that took place in Luma. And that took start, started a process of, in WA, people talking about kind of uh, youth deaths and youth suicides again. So this is um, 10 years before that, there was another inquest um, called the Hope Inquest, and that had looked at youth deaths um, in the Kimberley as well. And I think many listeners might be angry and frustrated because, uh, you know, it's decades from the Royal Commission into um, uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody and many of those recommendations, most of those recommendations have, had not, have not been implemented. And it's only this year, only in the last few months, that we finally have a custody notification service in Western Australia. Uh, but government have not, has not kind of come to the table to uh, meet its requirements as a human rights and a human welfare issue uh, in the Kimberley and and so this inquest was announced um, and it took place essentially over about 18 months or so. The findings were uh, finally handed down at the beginning of this year but it was a very difficult uh, inquest for us to be involved in. You, you personally were involved as um, a KCLS lawyer yeah, so I had worked with a particular family in in while I was working at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Perth, and when I moved up to Kununurra, um, I was asked to continue continue working on that. And so we continued to work with the Aboriginal Legal Service. Kimberley Community Legal Service hadn't done any inquest work in the past, and so it was the first time we had done this kind of work. And normally, when you do this kind of work, there's uh, either a barrister or someone who kind of does, and a lot of the work is often done from Perth. 
So we were kind of breaking ground in a, f- in a few different ways. Uh, and one of the ways we tried to break ground is we had three counsel from the KCLS side. Um, so it was myself and my colleague, Carol Way, who was based here in Broome, and my other colleague, Hannah Levy, who we're going to talk to today as well. And part of our thinking was, well, instead of one person going there and, you know, making submissions, we were going to work as a team drawing on all of our experience together to talk about these issues. And it was so challenging because the process hadn't really included the families from the beginning uh, Mm. and also not really taking into consideration the ways in which Aboriginal people want to talk and consider and investigate death. So, you know, talking about changes in the long term, I'd like to see that there would be kind of Aboriginal liaison officers in the coroner's court Mm. from all the different regions of WA. And I'd also like to see there being a section in any coronial investigation and in any findings that um, draws on an Aboriginal perspective of Mm. death. So one of the thing that kind of impacted on me having done inquest work for a number of years is generally you get a brief. So a brief is all the documents that the coroner and the counsel helping the coroner wants you to look at to consider the questions around why the person passed away. And the way the first document normally in a brief is a pathology report. Right. A pathology report is kind of a doctor's report that you probably watched crime shows that looks at the cause of death from a very scientific perspective. Mm. And the way they do that often is by doing an autopsy. And so you read these reports and it's really distressing um, because, you know, this is a human being and, you know, I'm I'm a Muslim, so I look at things from my own worldview um, and my spirituality is kind of different to the way these briefs kind of look look at it. Mm. And so when I was reading these reports, it was talking about a human being, but weighing their, the weight of looking at the weight of their kidney, the weight of their liver, weight of their heart. And the whole time I was thinking, this is a person. Like, you know, the way that they're being described is so impersonal. So part of me wondered, how have has there been the work done to say to the families and also to speak to First Nations communities about, well, how do you want us to investigate these deaths? Would you have us put an Aboriginal worldview or someone who's got the um, kind of knowledge and the authority to talk on those issues to present their set of findings about how they want um, their death investigated? Mm. And in my experience, a lot of people that I've, a lot of Aboriginal people I've worked with want it done both ways. They want to know the Western way, but they also want their own views included. And I don't see how that's a problem. I don't mm. see why you can't include both perspectives. So in this inquest, that wasn't that didn't happen? No, it didn't happen. And it doesn't happen in coronial processes. So what would happen, from my view, would be you would consult with people mm. about what you want to be in the brief. So maybe you want a cultural statement. Right. Or maybe you want the, the families want an opportunity to say, this is who this person was for me. Mm. Or you want... but. But how do you know what to ask if you're not even asking what should we ask? You're just bringing through. So the way these briefs work, and this is what's so upsetting, after the pathology report, it's usually the reports from the police, 
from um, social workers, social workers from child protection, from housing, and all of that's yeah. kind of a story of dysfunction and disadvantage, and it's all like numbers and figures. And for me, I mean, it's important to talk about the word colonialism because I think the way this is done is colonialist because. I think what it does is it dehumanizes. Like in, instead of like, you know, trying to talk to families, get their stories about that person, get all the different perspectives and putting in the resources to do that, it it impersonalizes it, it dehumanizes it until someone's a series of numbers and letters on, on a in a brief and in, 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 in mm. some reports. Mm. And so the first thing... I think when you want to do this work in, in, a, in a respectful way is to flip it and say, I actually want to humanize all of this. I want to kind of talk to people and get a full story about who this person was for their community. Mm. So this particular inquest was obviously based around the suicides. What can be done? What were some of the recommendations that you came up with? Well, I wasn't even comfortable to talk about it in terms of suicide at the time because some of the families didn't believe it was suicide right. and they didn't want their deaths included in that way in the inquest. Mm. So I, the, the coroner kind of understood that after a point of time, but, but it's, it's obviously a uncomfortable reality. So, so I think what I'm inter- what I think is useful to talk about is trauma and inter- intergenerational trauma mm. and all of the work that we did was, and most of the work Western Australia has amazing Aboriginal leaders who are often academics who have done work on trauma-informed practice, who have done work. So, for example, we spoke to uh, Dr. Pat Dudgeon, who has done a, um, who has created a resource in and around suicides that take place in an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, framework. Mm-hmm. And and so, like, we were only led by people who are already the leaders in the space. And really what those leaders are demanding is that they get heard, which is, listen, that this, this is uh, intergenerational, that a lot of the trauma is as a result of colonisation and its impacts in the Kimberley, but also in the rest of Australia, and respecting pathways that support country language culture community is the pathways towards healing and that because it's intergenerational it takes generations to heal it takes time and instead of looking for quick fix solutions Mm. um, you need to so one of the things that really kind of struck me was very early on in the process the council assisting the coroner and the coroner quite often was was talking about um, having a boarding school system where you you could have like an Aboriginal boarding school where people could go to get away from all of the trauma they're experiencing. And I was like, well, we're talking about stolen generations and now you're ta- the solution is taking kids away from community. How is that going to do anything? Yeah, that to me seems like a um, problem to a problem. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so from and so part of part of my thinking is, well, who comes up with the questions? Like why why do why did the council assisting think that that was an appropriate question to ask all of the witnesses? Like, why is that a solution? Who's done the research to say that's the solution to the problem as, as they see it? So right. this is part of the reasons why the coronial process needs reform mm. and it needs resourcing 
that respects kind of Aboriginal ways of, of seeing these issues because one, one thing that happens is the people in charge get to ask questions without themselves being culturally informed and essentially being in operating in a trauma-informed way as well. So I did. I read lots of. Well, I read the recommendations that KCLS, um, you, Hannah, and Carol had mm-hmm. made, and yeah, lots of them were based on consultation with Aboriginal people and um, self determination and um, things that bring the power back to Aboriginal people. And essentially, I suppose that's the answer. Well, it's, it sounds, and it's when you say it, it sounds so obvious, doesn't it? And mm. yet, it's we're still in two thousand and nineteen having other people make decisions for Aboriginal communities. So, mm. I mean, if, if someone, I just think about it this way, if someone in my family's passed on, who's going to be best to work out what they, what, what my culture and what my family needs to kind of address the issues? Of course I am, because mm. I've got the skin in the game. I've got the emotion and the heart and the years of connection with my family members to be able to say, and I'm going to be there when things go go hard again you see Hmm. and so unless you are consulting including being driven in design in program delivery by aboriginal people then how are you going to address these issues yeah and i suppose also that's where the passion stems from as well Mm. so a lot of the recommendations were about um you know increasing resourcing for social programs but they're social programs that aboriginal community controlled so a really good project that we discussed with was the Uriman project. But there's plenty mm. of projects that are Kimberley-based that are controlled by communities and are Aboriginal-led. They're the projects that are going to have impact. Well, I think there's um, Galari's um, started one, that What Kind mm. project. Mm. Yeah, the new ads on TV where, uh, you know, the kids are encouraging other people to talk about, you know, feeling down and flat. Um, but, yeah, I think... Essentially, what needs to happen is people need to be able to feel like they have a voice. Systems that take away people's voice don't actually solve any problems. And there are a whole bunch of practical solutions that were were kind of made as well. So, for example, a lot of the towns don't have a drop-in space for young people to hang out that is supervised uh, mm. and could be a place for people just to kind of, when, when there's you know other things going on, that they can go out, hang out and be provided with some support. What I think, to be honest, is the biggest issue is some kind of alternate, alternative education pathway that's not, it's not available for people to be able to, um, you know, do something as like an alternative to year, year 11 and 12 in high school, um, which means that, that people believe that they're dumb and they're not successful because they haven't completed that. But really, it's like you, you're you're clever and you're smart. You just need to be doing something different that's better suited to you. There's a tension though because sometimes those programs exist and then the schools um, in some occasions kind of usher the Aboriginal students who come from remote communities into those programs. And a lot of the parents are like, actually, I want my kid to go to school. So like you have to strike the right balance so that there is an understanding about increasing the options for kids rather than decreasing them. But also putting value on the options as an equivalent to year 12 because I personally understand that I, you know, I went to boarding school and I was put under a ridiculous amount of pressure because I was told that finishing year 12 was the be all and end all and going to university was what I had to do. And then as becoming an adult, I'm like, well, hang on, my success is not 
um, pinpointed to whether or not I have a degree, yeah, it would help. It would be great. But at the end of the day, that my success is whatever I want it to be mm. and my purpose is whatever I decide it to be. And I think um, people, what people are, are constantly being told by the education system or um, the, you know, the, the in jobs and, and um, all of this stuff is that, that, that they can't be successful and that they can't have purpose unless they're doing what's like what they're told to do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how is that fair? People are uh, put in a position where they don't want to be and then they're not being heard. But I mean, and what's your perspective on kind of trauma and the the issues around trauma for young people in the Kimberley? Like where, where would you see supports placed? Well, unfortunately in this day and age, every young person in the Kimberley has trauma, you know, whether it be personally or them, um, you know, like having, feeling the trauma from their family members. Like, so I think this is a tough one because it's like, if there was an easy answer, we'd already be there. Mm. But I suppose... But I think there are things that can be done. Like I I think, like I said, you've got recommendations from... um, the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Royal Commission, and that's not been implemented. So I feel like there are answers out there that can be implemented. Like I'm saying to you, without a doubt, if there were Aboriginal liaison positions or I don't or like positions that would consider Aboriginal perspectives in the coroner's court, you would have impact in families feeling more heard mm. through the coronial process. Yeah. So I think I think it's right to say that there's so many different aspects to dealing with intergenerational trauma that there's not one thing that's going to create a solution. But I think, well, all the little parts that make that up aren't being implemented either. Mm. So even though I don't think there's going to be one fix or a quick fix, but I still feel like we're not doing all the little bits that will strengthen our communities to that so that we don't have these issues in the future. Mm. Uh, I think a, an important one is role models, having somebody to look up to. You know, in your darkest days, you can look at someone and go, oh, they've been through something similar or they've been through, um, you know, a difficult time. Maybe, you know, it's not so it's not so difficult for me to feel like I can find a purpose. Um, I also think, obviously, the big one is housing. Mm, like, mm. there needs to be something done about the housing in the Kimberley because everything stems from housing issues. It's a human right to have adequate shelter. Mm. Um, and, you know, how can you um, be expected to go to school and to get a job and to contribute or feel like you're living a life of purpose when you live in an unstable environment, when you're living in a house that's full of overcrowding and, um, you know, leaking toilets that take months to get repaired? Like, how can you feel stable in an environment like that? One, you've you've spoken about housing, and earlier you spoke about you were speaking about you were speaking about schooling, <laughs> mm. um, and to me, why are we talking about schooling? We're talking about what people do after they leave school, mm. which is how do people con- contribute to their society? We've spoken about this before on this show. Yeah. So right now, there are limited pathways for people who leave school to find meaningful employment mm. inside of their communities. And so people are either forced to move off country, which shouldn't have to happen, mm. or they're forced to work to kind of exist inside of the welfare system with CDP mm. or with Newstart or whatever. Yeah. But country has so many pathways 
for people to contribute to if government supported it. So like I've said yeah. in the past, if every person who left school knew that they had an option to either work in culture, work in language, work on country like a ranger, mm. work in care, looking after people mm. and work in art or work in sport, like you'd have all of these pathways for people to continue living in community in a way where they're contributing and then that would make people feel good. Yeah. It would yeah, make I people agree. feel like they're a part of their community. Yeah. And then when those communities are supported, then those communities also feel like they're contributing to the Australian fabric of society. Mm. And that gets us closer to having a society that is taking into consideration all of the diverse standpoints. So First Nations point of view, remote communities point of view, listening to the needs of country, listening to the needs of culture, well, yeah. all of it coming together. There's this um, contradicting set of values, you know. There's two different sets of values. And like you said, if there was put more value on things that are important to people in the Kimberley and in remote communities, then we wouldn't have issues like this, you know. So I think um, we need to find a place of balance between these two sets of values or multiple sets of values. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to listen to a song. Uh, we'll be listening to Imagine by John Lennon. Oh 
Welcome back to the show. Uh, you're listening to Tulu and Sarush on Deadly Justice. Uh, we have a guest today. Today we have um, Hannah Levy, who is the Principal Solicitor of KCLS Kununurra Office. Uh, how are you going, Hannah? Good, thanks, Salula. How are you? Not too bad. Um, so this week's show, we're talking about uh, the inquest that you were a part of. Um, do you want to yes. just give us a little bit of an intro? What's an inquest and what uh, what does it entail? Yeah, so what an inquest is, is it's a court investigation into someone passing away. Um, there are certain deaths are reportable deaths, um, depending on the circumstances, and that's in the Coroner's Act. Um, the coroner uh, can decide when she wants to investigate a death and she can look at systemic issues that led to that might have led to that person passing um, and they might be systemic social or legal or medical issues um, the coroner at the end of an inquest will then make recommendations and those recommendations are generally in a um, report that's that's published on their website and is provided to government and the government can then um, decide if they're going to adopt any of those recommendations or not. Um, in terms of what the process looks like, so um, the, the coroner's court is based in Perth um, and, it, and so an inquest can happen in Perth in the coroner's court or it, the coroner's court um, can, if the coroner decides it's appropriate, um, can travel to the uh, region that's closest to where that person has passed. Generally, um, so the coroner um, works with counsel assisting to decide what evidence is to go into the inquest, and the counsel assisting is a is a lawyer. Um, and that person will um, decide who's going to come to the inquest and give evidence. So often you see people like um, medical experts or um, police experts um, or sometimes social science experts coming and giving evidence. And um, generally the, the party, so the family members are represented and that was where um, Sarish and I came into it. So we represented families in um, the inquest into youth suicide in the East Kimberley. And then we're essentially there to ask questions and to assist in telling that family's story in the inquest. Um, can, I, can I ask... Um, uh, I've got a couple of questions based on what you said. So you mentioned reportable deaths. Uh, is it correct that deaths in custody are considered reportable deaths? I I understand that they are, and also um, a death of a child in care. That's another. So if the child is in the care of the CEO of child protection, right. that's also a reportable death. So can you tell, just for our listeners' sake as well, what is a death in custody? That's probably a question that's better. For, so I haven't done. Um, I haven't done any inquests for people who have passed in custody. Um, my understanding is that that's people that have passed in while they're in prison. 
uh, or, or in the yeah. sorry, or in the care of the police, um, or in any government agency as well. My understanding. Okay. Yeah. What if Hannah? What if um, people aren't happy with the the questions that or what the evidence that the coroner's considering or if people have more questions or they think other things should be considered that the coroner hasn't um, paid attention to and um, so do you mean that that's after the inquest or, or, or during it? yeah so let's say um, you, you know you let's say you've got a lawyer and you're like I'm not happy with the things that the coroner's talking about or I want them to think about other things um, so that's something that you should always seek legal advice on because um, there can sometimes be some um, sticky parts and points that need to be negotiated about how what evidence is relevant and how to get it in. Um, but as a general principle, I would always say that if families are concerned that there isn't evidence before the inquest that they think is important, they should speak to or they should get a lawyer and speak to their lawyer who can advocate for them. Um, and that lawyer most often will first bring it up with counsel assisting that that evidence should be included and why. And if that and if counsel assisting can't, and the lawyer can't come to agreement, then that's something you'd raise with the coroner herself. So can you tell us as well, I guess, on that, who um, if if there's a death um, that you've got worries about, who would you see for legal help in the Kimberley? Um, you could go to Kim, our office, Kimberley Community Legal Service, or Aboriginal Legal Service. They're, uh, they're, they're who I'd say would be your first points of contact. Right. Uh, Hannah, what, what was the basis for this particular inquest? So this inquest um, was announced in March 2000, and well, the inquest into youth suicide in the East Kimberley was announced in March 2017. Um and it was because of the number of deaths of young people in the Kimberley region and the number of those deaths being by suicide. And the intention of it was to look at systemic issues. And it was something that was requested by government. Um, so, so that's not always how an inquest is started. So in 2008, the HOPE inquest was started from a request from Aboriginal communities, um, but this was done by the, the inquest into youth suicide in East Kimberley was started as a result of a government initiation. Uh, so I believe you guys um, helped conduct this inquest for over a number of years. Over um, eighteen months on and off. Okay. Yeah. What What were some of the hardest bits? I suppose this is a question for both of you. What were the hardest parts of conducting? Um, the inquest. I'll let Han Hannah answer it from her perspective, but just also, um, we didn't conduct the inquest. What we did was we acted for a number of the families. Right. So we, we were there to kind of bring their concerns forward in the hearing um, and represent their point of view. Uh, okay, yep. yeah. Um, so there's, there's lots of different parts of it that were challenging. Um, overall, I think it was most challenging all the families often who had um, they the inquest brought up history and it's important to know the context it was it wasn't initiated by the families and it was often 
an in, and it was an inquest often into loved ones that had passed many years ago. Um, people who were still being grieved, but um, the families were dealing with that grief. Um, so it really was something that was transposed onto them, and that was hard. Um, it was hard to um, hard on the families to understand why their family members were chosen and um, how it was relevant to them. And um, but they were oh, the families I acted for um, were incredibly resilient and um, could see benefit in participating, although I think they had a healthy cynicism about what would be achieved. Um, so in that backdrop, I think um, what was difficult as a, as a solicitor was having was being able to build the family's um, faith, I suppose, in the process so that they would participate. And um, that participation often looked like just providing instructions, providing their um, story, uh, a very personal and often old story, and um, providing a statement, so putting that story in writing. Um, and as a lawyer there, that that's... Um, it's often... I mean, as a lawyer, you want your client to be able to tell their story orally. That's what the court is... Um, that's what our court process uh, relies so much on, is having people speak in open court. But there are lots and lots of barriers normally in court, and then those barriers, I think, are increased when it comes to an inquest. It didn't feel like a safe space, did it, for people to come and tell their story? That was my feeling. Yeah. Um, so many, many families didn't even want to be there to hear what was going on um, and preferred to hear about it afterwards um, on their porch in the same way they'd provided instructions. But no, it didn't feel like a safe space, and I think that's because it's um, it is an in, like it is, it's it's a process where people give evidence and then they're examined by um, two lawyers, essentially, who are culturally different and um, and. Uh, and, and are probably not as, um, and could be more sensitive, I think, mm. to the really sensitive nature of the material. And I don't know, I kind of get the impression uh, that to do this kind of thing the right way requires time and genuine consultation. So when they were saying, for example, you know, um, have you been able to get a hold of the families? And the families were living in community, you know, and we're wearing Kununurra and Broome and trying to go out and find people. And then also you're talking about someone's, some of the most important people in someone's life. So they might not be ready to talk about it at that particular point in time. Mm, so then yeah. you have to go back. And it's like, how do you explain to a coroner's court 4,000 kilometres away in Perth that people need more time and then because it's its own process, it operates in its own way, 
it kind of feels like they they weren't making space for the needs of the families and so i don't know quite often i felt like the family i felt like that i was outside of the process and i'm not a family member of the person who's passed so me as the advocate for the family members felt that that our clients were on the outside of the process i don't know is that how you felt hannah Yes. Um, yeah, it did feel like that, and um, and and it felt like through that it was really hard to um, hear the full story. Mm. We're going to take another quick break, and we're going to listen to "Revolution" by Tracy Chapman. Don't you know that talking about a revolution sounds whisper? Don't you know that talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper? While they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines, sitting around. Get there, yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. guys were a part of the process of um, writing a submission on, on some recommendations that came out of that um, inquest. What what were some of the um, recommendations that you guys suggested? So, um, our, so Kimberley Community Legal Service um, wrote um, submissions and we had 65 different recommendations. Um, I, I think what is 
so not all of our obviously not all of our recommendations were adopted by the by the coroner. I think there was a flavour though in our submissions that was adopted, um, which I, I I think is which I think was an achievement. Um, and the flavour of our submissions was that it, it needs we need to be looking at the root causes of this stuff, um, and that is intergenerational trauma and the history of colonisation in the Kimberley and how that results in um, poor social outcomes for people living here. Um, the, <clears throat> so some of the submissions that we... Some of the recommendations that me, we made um, were uh, that I'm particularly passionate about around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So um, no-one in the... None of the young people who were part of the inquest were found to have been diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but it is recognised as a problem in the Kimberley. Um, so we, we made recommendations that there should be screening for FASD during in, in infant health assessments, so early detection, um, that it should be something that's recognised as a disability by the NDIS to attract funding, um, that it there should be additional funding for primary health care services in the Kimberley to assist with young people with um, FASD and to increase the ability to diagnose it. Um, there, there were so many recommendations, it's sort of hard to, to pick particular ones. Um, but a, a positive outcome, which I don't think is the result of the inquest, is that FASD is now um, recognised as a disability under the NDIS scheme. Um, because it attracts a functional disability. And so that means that people with a diagnosis can receive um, financial support. Um, so that's a positive outcome. But I don't think that was solely because of the inquest. The lobbying for that has come from many different directions. Um, is, is there a particular area that you want to talk about? No, I mean, I think that's... Um really useful to talk about because you're, you're speaking about what you're interested in. I suppose my sense of, of our submissions were that they were very geared towards supporting, um, I guess, a self-determination approach whereby yeah. Aboriginal community-controlled organisations must lead the design and consultation process of uh, social housing, health policy making in the Kimberley. Yeah. And I felt like that was really fundamental in, in what we were observing. Um, yeah. And I kind of got the impression from reading the coroner's findings that there was some agreement that that is the approach that policy makers should take. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, that's... Um, and, and I think a lot of the positive media that came out of the inquest focused on that issue, um, which isn't... It's, it's in, a, in a way, it's disappointing because that's not new information, is it? No, it's um, so yeah. obvious as well, isn't it? Organ yeah. Organisations have been saying that should happen for... Aboriginal organisations have been saying that should happen for decades. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask this. Hannah, in your perspective, it's basically been almost a year um, from upon which the coroner's made her findings. Do you, Have you observed any change in the Kimberley 
or any fundamental change in the Kimberley in policy making in that period? I I get asked this a lot, um, and I'd I'd have to say um, no. So we often um, there's been very little. So um, I amongst the legal services in town, we often say when people ask us what should happen, say a. Uh, you know, look at the look at the recommendations of the inquest. Um, I mean, I think one change is the the incorporation of FASD as uh, the acknowledgement of FASD as a disability under the NDAS, but that's I don't think it's a result of the of the inquest. Um, what's I, I don't I think there's been very little. What's your view, Sarah? I mean, my views, yeah, I agree there's, there's been very little cha- change. I suppose one thing that I feel um, slightly hopeful about is that there are youth organisations who we cons- and there are u- young people who we consulted with during the inquest and um, I, I kind of see young people in some ways leading the charge in this, so... Um, I understand that um, there's been a, res- a report la- launched by young people across the Kimberley uh, in relation to youth suicide, and they've again made the kinds of recommendations that people can imagine, which in- includes things like increasing local Aboriginal culture in the school curriculum, more collaboration between health services and agencies, a permanent forum amplifying Aboriginal voices additional funding for training to, to enable young people to maintain self-care and identify suicidal behaviours in others. So, I don't know. I, From my perspective, I haven't seen much policy-making shift since the inquest that we are involved in, but I'm hopeful that people and community, community here in the Kimberley is organising in different ways to demand more from... the, the demand that the government does more. Um, I don't know if I'm just being an optimist, but that's that's kind of... I kind of feel like there's been a renewed attention. Not that the attention hasn't been there for the Aboriginal community, you know, since, you know, colonisation in many ways, but there's been this kind of new vigour that I've I've seen, uh, and that may be cause for some, some good change. All right. Um... Thank you for joining us today, Hannah. It's been really uh, interesting to to hear about your work with the inquest. Uh, So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Hannah Levy, Principal Solicitor for the East Kimberley for Kimberley Community Legal Services. And uh, a shout-out also to Saroosh. This is his last show with us. Thank you so much for all the hard work that you've done and for teaching me the ropes um, we wish you all the very best uh, in Melbourne and you will be very sorely missed. Um, yeah. <laughs> so thank you.